Welcome to Built to Play, games and technology for the arts inclined. I'm Robin Igbali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, we resurrect Twixon with pizza-themed incantations. Plus, Nintendo wants to watch you sleep, and Twitch wants you to put a shirt on. And we visit Gamer Camp to defuse bombs and punch with our elbows. But first, Daniel and I fight to the death in fearsome video game combat. As we mentioned last week, GamerCamp is a Toronto-based games festival that showcases indie games. It's the largest of its kind in the city and runs every October. Or it did until it ended in its sixth year. So, if you miss GamerCamp, sorry folks, it's gone. You can hear a full interview with the co-founder, Jamie Wu, up on our site, but don't run off just yet. We talked to a lot of people at this year's show, and as part of our theme month on Friends and Enemies, decided to compete in Mortal Kombat to determine who is the better games person. The fact that a game was single player, or wasn't actually competitive, didn't hinder us at all. So, for our requisite training montage, we started with... Apotheon! Set in ancient Greece, a lone warrior must fight his way through the land of the dead to defeat cruel gods. We saw this game before at the Bit Bazaar a few months ago, but only it's arena combat mode. This time, Daniel got a first-hand look at the clay pot art style, learned about its life as a space adventure, and talked to director Jesse McGivney. What, what, what came first, the idea to make a game based on Greek mythology or the game's kind of very distinctive, you know, Greek pottery art style? Right. So when we originally started making the game, you know, four years ago, it, it started off as a, a sci-fi game without any of the art style or any of the story or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, we wanted to make a, a science fiction open world kind of Grand Theft Auto on a space station kind of thing in 2D. And then uh, I wanted to do kind of a mashup between science fiction and mythology so I was kind of making my own mythology, and it was kind of like a Truman Show sort of situation where, like, the gods were pulling strings in reality on, you know, with weird magic technology and that kind of stuff. Um, and then it got to the point where I just switched over to Greek mythology in space, so, you know, kind of a mashup between, you know, what if Zeus had a laser gun kind of stuff. And then uh, eventually I asked myself, why don't I just go ancient Greece, because that's never really been done before, you know, aside from God of War and stuff like that, but... The connections to that and actual mythology are pretty tenuous at best. Uh, and then when I was digging up some reference material, it was kind of that dawning realization of why don't we just go the whole way and have Greek mythology and Greek art in kind of this union of, of uh, aesthetic and narrative. What 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 is your history, if any, with Greek mythology? Like, did you read a lot of it as a kid or did uh, you study it at all? Not a whole lot. Like, I like my dad read me, like, the Iliad and the Odyssey and stuff like that as a kid. Certainly when we started the, the project, I had to dig into a lot of history books and, and mythology books and uh, uh, just to figure out who the hell the characters were, what the technology, the weapons, the armor, all that kind of stuff at the time was, um, how to kind of adapt the art style of Greek pottery to a game because a lot of it didn't really work because there's no like environment in the Greek pottery it's just characters so how to actually make levels using that art style was kind of a challenge um, yeah so definitely a lot of a lot of research went in so and can you mention a little bit about Greek mythology kind of being the origin of quest structure and stuff like that did you did you guys find that there was a lot of sort of very classic quest structures like very 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 sort of you know simple quest structures that kind of games have done over and over again but that's considering this is where they come from that was sort of like necessary um yeah like it it definitely is kind of the origin of a lot of things i personally i don't really like uh you know the mmo style quests of like get 10 boar testicles and bring them back to here we don't have a lot of that in this game um it's primarily you know it's focused around our, our combat mechanic system and bringing you to new areas and trying to teach you different tactics of how to deal with things um but definitely there is, you know, uh, uh, 
you're going from point A to point B and getting different goodies and getting more powerful, uh, which that shows up a hell of a lot for, for Greek mythology, where you're getting gifts from gods and, and powers from gods in order to do even bigger challenges. And, and I guess that sort of ties into the RPG mechanics of it and can kind of speak a little bit to the, you know, what, what kind of stuff does, does the character kind of get added on to them? So uh, it's not, they're not heavy RPG mechanics, they're, they're fairly light. Uh, like, you know, you're not, you're not leveling up and putting points into stats and stuff like that, but you are definitely getting uh, new weapons, better weapons. You're getting, you know, more armor, which will give you more health. And, uh, and every time you kill a god, you'll get a, a, another ability. So, like, you know, the ability to double jump and the ability to, uh, you know... Uh, specific damage multipliers or you know regenerating shields and that kind of thing and then a lot of the the item system is actually closer to a, a first person shooter in that all the weapons and and, our, and uh, shields and everything can break so they're treated more like ammo so it's not like you're going to find the fire sword and then you're going to stick with the fire sword for the whole game it's that you have a fire sword and it's really really powerful but it'll break eventually so you have to kind of pick and choose when you're going to use it and you, you'll have a, an extensive inventory of, of things to switch between you know bows and arrows and spears and swords and axes and, and all this kind of stuff. When, when it comes to making sort of a almost brawler style fighting system across you know a fairly large game, did you find that you had to, what, what, what did you find you had to kind of dig into and make just deeper just so people wouldn't get, you know, it, it wouldn't turn into like Final Fight where it's just punch, 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 spin, punch? Yeah, well, uh, most of the enemies are, are, you know, humanoid, so they're essentially bots in, in terms of like a multiplayer sense. We actually... Uh, we developed multiplayer originally because we didn't have any AI. We wanted to figure out how the fighting system would work. So we tried to make the fighting system as, as deep as we could on you know human versus human enemies. So there's a lot of variety in terms of how the guys are behaving when you're fighting them. You know they're they can do basically anything you can do. They can they can dodge. They can they can roll. They can block. They can shield bash. They can stun you. They can knock you off your feet. They can do head headshot damage to you. They'll throw weapons. Some of them drink potions and get health back and all this kind of stuff. That wasn't the only unique visual style we caught at Gamer Camp. We met the designer of Relativity, a reality-twisting puzzle game. Relativity asks you to solve puzzles by switching the direction of gravity. You start on the ground, point to the wall, and the world turns 90 degrees. You have to keep track of the game's layout as the floor becomes the ceiling and the walls shift. To figure out how the designer maps his own maze, Armon talked to Willie Schur. I like to describe Relativity as first-person MC Escher. Um, for a lot of people who've seen the film Inception, there's the scene where they fold Paris in half, so people are walking on the ceiling, and relativity is about letting you explore that space. So what happens if there are multiple gravity fields, like, you know, how do objects behave, and letting you play around with that. Where did you get the idea of having this world kind of, uh, where you can walk on all platforms, and the puzzles are kind of being able to negotiate between those? Yeah, it, it, so the initial idea was that I'd want to make a game based on Escher's works, and, and the one I found was, was the drawing Relativity, where you have people walking on different walls. And so, But the initial iteration of the game, the world rotated and not the player. Um, but I did a lot of playtesting and, and iterating, and eventually it arrived at what it's now, where the player can walk on different surfaces and turn on and off different gravities. Like That just made the most sense from a puzzle design and game design standpoint. Why, what was wrong with having the whole world shift? Well, so uh, the problem there is if you have objects, like let's say you play some tables and some chairs in that world. As soon as the player rotates it the first time, all of those objects end up in the bottom left corner. They all slide down and they will remain that way for the rest of the game. So you end up 
not being able to have like very interesting um, design decisions because whatever you place in the room, the player rotates and then it's just a mess. Yeah. So this is just a much cleaner way to have the, the objects move around. Yeah, and also it's it's much cleaner to position objects in this way, and also the um, the puzzles in that earlier version were not as interesting. Like a lot of them, you'd see exactly what you have to do right away, and it's just an execution problem. Uh, and I think first-person platforming, where you have to like jump across gaps, is always painful. And this one is more about like, hmm, I don't know what's going on here. Let me take some time to figure out what to do. And I think those puzzles work a lot better, or at least I prefer them. How do you map this out? What does this look like? Do you have like a sheet of paper that is just crazy or? Uh, no, I don't. So I, I haven't found a good way to, to plan out the levels in 2D. All I do is I just go inside and I build them and then I will play through them multiple times and play test it. Like, you know, I've been showing this game at 13 different events in the last eight months. So I've probably had over a thousand play testers and it's just from watching people play that I refine the levels. Yeah. So basically you're, you're kind of taking notes, at least mentally, as people go along here and try to go and uh, beat, beat these puzzles? Yeah, it's a lot of tweaking. I mean, at this point, I sort of have a very good sense of the big questions in this current build of the game. But there's, you know, I'll, I'll see people always get stuck at one play and I think, okay, maybe that corner can be... Uh, you know, that hallway doesn't need to be a long or, or that those set of stairs can be moved a little to the left, stuff like that. How do you determine whether something is a, the appropriate amount of difficulty for for a given puzzle? For, for instance, like, to what extent are you supposed to be helping the player solve the puzzle? Yeah, that, that's probably the, the hardest thing to figure out, uh, you know, because you want it to be challenging enough that it's not boring but you also don't want to be too frustrating that you turn players off so um the way i do it is i usually end up going too hard at first and if a lot of people are getting stuck then i figure out what can i do to help those people get through and you keep dialing it down until i'm seeing most people at conventions get past that um so it's yeah i always like start too difficult and then start to make it easier easier but not not through explicit hints just realizing okay, people are getting confused because this thing here, these set of stairs are distracting, so I take away those set of stairs, and I see what happens then. Has there anything that you've kind of picked up that's just been a, a, a larger lesson kind of from just watching people go through there? Is there something about your world that you really have to tweak as you went along? Uh, definitely. I think when I first started the game, I was very set on the puzzles. Like, I thought this is the most interesting part. This is the stuff I really want people to focus on, these blocks and the relationships. But as I watched people play, it seemed like exploration of the world was much more rewarding. And so the game has actually shifted its focus. There's not, there's far less puzzles than what there used to be at the beginning. And those puzzles, instead of testing for precision and movement, it's if you get the concept, then execution is not much of a problem and you can... You know, there's a lot of like leeway in how you solve it, uh, and then you can go on and explore. So it's like I've shifted the focus from puzzle solving to exploration. Where did you draw the, the minimalist art style for this? So I mean, a lot of the uh, so Anti Chamber has been a huge influence and uh, in a game I've studied a lot, and, and that like I mean, a lot of the minimalist choices were made because of the puzzle solving aspects of it. It's like 
And also because Antichamber is a very puzzle-oriented game, sort of some of those decisions end up leading to the same art style. Like, I don't want anything to distract a player. Um, but yeah, that is sort of an ongoing challenge for me. It's like, how do I maintain a minimalist look while looking different from Antichamber? So a lot of that I'm doing with, like, lighting, because there's no shadows in Antichamber, so I'm going with that and, you know different color gradients um but that's so it's been two years now and i have another year and a half left to go so i'm hoping that year and a half there'll be smaller changes that i keep adding and eventually they all add up and make it similar like minimalist but different from antichamber I'm Armin Bali. I'm Daniel Rosen. Uh, and we're about to engage in a battle, battle of wills, battle of wits. Battle of video games, which is unfair actually, because you were here yesterday and know a lot more about these games. So you're going, you you are kind of the representative of experience. I think we're going to have a social experiment here. Does experience win games or does national talent and beauty win video games? Soon enough, we tried out the most challenging game we could find. Hidden off in the corner of the second floor of Gamer Camp, there was a tent. That tent was called Moof, and inside was a cozy blanket and projector, which displayed an array of stars on the roof. So, naturally, we fought for supremacy in this quilt-based combat. I think the red hats are physically the only buttons we have. Okay. Yeah, it's the only thing that has a thing underneath it. That's not doing anything. After goofing around for a bit, we met with the tent's designer, Hamish Lambert, and talked about building a video game out of camping equipment in your own backyard. So we're sitting inside of this tent that has a screen sewn to the uh, ceiling of the tent, and we're sitting on a quilt, a handmade quilt that also has uh, patches of conductive thread sewn on it. So that means the quilt is the controller for the game. So when you touch one of the patches with the conductive thread, uh, it makes a thing happen on the screen sewn to the top, which we're projecting onto. So... Where did you get the idea of having um, what I did in fourth grade in my backyard as a video game? Well, uh, it was actually kind of, it was just a process basically where we started brainstorming weird controllers. It was part of this games incubator that a bunch of us were participating in. So we were like, blanket controller! Because <laughs> who doesn't love blankets? <laughs> and we were also really sleepy all the time, so it was good for that. Um, and originally when we made the project, we were just projecting onto the ceiling, because when you're on a blanket, you're going to be lying down. But that was a pain to set up every time. So after the prototype was done, we are like, okay, we need a way to like contain everything, like a self-contained, uh, self-supporting structure. So that's when we put it inside of a tent. So how do the buttons themselves work? I mean, like you said, you got a bit of conductive um, thread on them? What is this? So the game is, um, th there's a makey-makey that's in between the blanket and the computer. Okay. What so, is a makey-makey? Makey-makey, it's a uh, circuit board. I can't remember, I don't know who makes them, I can't remember the name, but a makey-makey, basically it allows anything that's conductive to be an input for a computer. So the makey-makey is mapped to the keyboard as well as arrow keys of a computer. And then you have alligator clips that connect to the circuit board and connect to whatever is the conductive thing, like a banana or a bucket of water or another person. And then you, the, uh, person using the makey-makey holds the ground and then when they touch the alligator clip or whatever the conductive object is they complete the circuit and it sends an input to the computer okay. so this blanket uh, it has the input and the ground in uh, two separate lines on the button 
So that means when your hand touches it, your hand connects the ground to the input and it sends the input to the computer. Each button sort of has a very specific thing it does, but you you obviously know we were sort of just trying to figure it out based on like I was like, well this button seems to make rings of light and a dinging noise, but I'm not sure because other people are pressing buttons. It's sort of kind of was that sort of always going to be part of the experience of sort of working together to figure out what things do? Or was it more of just like hitting the buttons and just seeing what happens? This is something that we were debating during the process of development in terms of like, do we want the users to like be able to figure it out and be like, okay, this does this, that does that, that does that, or that does that, or do we want to make it more ambiguous? Um, and really, it depends on the person. It's easier to figure out what's going on when you're playing by yourself because then it's just like, it's less confusing because you can be like, okay, this button does that. But I think it's more fun with more people, and it's also more fun when people don't care about like figuring out the game. Because ultimately, it's an extremely simple setup. You push a thing, and a thing happens. So each button does correspond to one single animation and sound. But the most fun way to do it is when you're with a group of people, and everyone's just like touching things, and they're like, oh, you're making houses! I'm going to, okay, there's rings now! Okay, and throwing balloons. Yeah. So... There is no real end goal here. It's just kind of making effects. I mean, it looks real pretty, but did you decide? Why did you decide to have this be more of a toy as say something with an end goal? I think that came in the original prototype, in the sense that we thought of blanket controller and they're like, okay, what kind of games or interesting things we can do with that? Uh, and we we're thinking of ideas like, okay, maybe uh, it could be something where you're looking up at the sky and you're using the blanket controller to fly, or you're looking over water and you're using it to swim around or something. Um, but ultimately, it just came from, I come from an animation background, a film background. So I was really inspired by the mood or feeling of these two particular short animated films. And so we just wanted it to make a relaxing experience. Uh, and having no goals kind of ties into the relaxing. You're not trying to do anything. You're just there to hang out. Did you find that kind of over the course of showing it... Um that people were going in sort of in groups or were people kind of going in like with a stranger or something and does that did that kind of change how they reacted afterwards it definitely changes how they react and it depends on the festival for example here at gamer camp we've had a lot more people just going in by themselves um but then we were at indicate last week and the like structure of the format of indicate i guess it encouraged like people were hanging out with their friends and stuff so you'd have a group of like four or six people just waiting in line, all talking, and then they finally got into the tent. So they're all with their friends together. Um, but we also encourage people to go in with strangers because we, from our observations, people enjoy it more when they're with other people. So sometimes there some you know individuals aren't as comfortable with strangers, and some strangers are super friendly and they get along. But um, so here at Gamer Camp, it's been more like individuals and us just throwing strangers together, whereas at other festivals and other events, it's been like friends coming in to hang out. And, and how do people sort of react when they have stranger when they're just with a stranger? How do they often come out of it? They're usually like you know happy, but there's not like all of a sudden they've become best friends, which would be really cool. But you know, it's not that powerful, unfortunately. Two strangers enter one tent, come out best friends. That would be a pretty amazing uh, game you had in their hands. I'll be moved too. <laughs> Jesse McGivney is an art director based in Oakville, working on a Pantheon. Willie Scher is a designer of Relativity, based in Chicago. And Hamish Lambert is an animator based in Montreal. All these games will be available on an internet near you, except for Moof, unless you advise Hamish to build a tent in your living room. We'll have more of our trip to Gamer Camp and the Ultimate Smackdown later in the show. I think somebody else wants in. I think we are very confused. So, Halloween was this week, and while we have no spookums, we do have some scary news! Beginning with the tale of a slasher! A 
Price slasher, that is. If you live in the U.S., the Microsoft Cutter is in town because the company will temporarily drop the price of the Xbox One by $50, putting it at uh, 350 U.S. fun bucks. In comparison, the PS4 is $400 right now, and the Wii U is 300 Actually, if you go to GameStop, GameStop's site while this promotion is going on, the li- they list new Xbox Ones as cheaper than used ones, which is hilarious and a beautiful thing. Uh, the sale actually only applies to the U.S. and not Canada, where we also have a $450 PS4 for some crazy reason. Remember when they made a big deal of it costing $400? Yep, no, it's whatever reason. The price difference between a Canadian and U.S. dollar is such that this is some, for some reason reasonable, and I don't like it. Weak dollar, betrayed the gods, queen hates us. There's a lot of excuses. This made us realize that it's been a full Gregorian calendar since we stood outside in the cold and asked people why they were buying these hunks of practice and wire, and I figured we should talk about our, us ourselves, how they're doing, our worth it um so what, what do you think i mean I, I i mean the ps4 seems to have a couple games for it bloodborne is coming out um if it was a matter of buying it this holiday season mm-hmm. i don't know what i would be buying the game with right mm-hmm. now there just isn't like there's a lot of indie games on there yeah but there's also a lot of indie games on the ps3 all those indie games are all every single indie game that's on the ps4 is either crossed by with the ps3 or the vita yeah and honestly i think they're probably a better experience on the vita except for maybe towerfall yeah, yeah. Um, um, there's Xbox, and at least for the Xbox One, they have Sunset. Le- of, they have Sunset Overdrive. They have now, less you know? exclusives overall, yeah. though. They have Sunset Overdrive and yeah, they, Titanfall. This... Who's playing Titanfall? <laughs> well, okay. So let's give it the benefit of a doubt. What is what would the PS4 be if you were if you were in the market for a console right now? Would you be looking for a, a PlayStation Four? Would you think? I, w- I would probably be more interested in the PlayStation 4 if only because Sony's exclusives, for whatever they're worth, have only been slightly more int- I like Uncharted a little bit. Right. And I don't really care about Halo or Gears of War. Um, they both have solid racing game exclusives, so... Well, I, Forza has apparently... While Forza isn't great, apparently Drive Club was a complete mess at launch. Yeah, so... but there's still Gran Turismo 7. There was Gran Turismo 7 coming out, you're right. And for people who do care about that stuff, I guess that, that is available yeah, for not, them. Not that any of that interests me at all, but... Yeah. It, it's one of those things, like, if I just... Like, Bloodborne is more interesting to me than Sunset Overdrive. That's sort of where I'm at. But neither one is... Pretty, like, Bloodborne seems cool, but it's not out yet. And it, I, I, won't, I won't know until February. It's not really a holiday season game. There's also the Order 16, 6, uh, 19, 1866. 1866. That... That game looks cool, but yeah. it's also basically a combat, a cover-based shooter. Yeah, I have no idea what that game... I, it's hard to kind of envision what's going to make that game unique. Honestly, if I were to, if you, if somebody put a gun to your head and say, buy, you're buying a console this holiday season, what do you buy? I would tell you to buy a Wii U. Oh, yeah, totally. No, it's it's super weird, but yes. It's I like, would. that's that, that's not a thing I would have said a year ago, or even, I guess, half a year ago, but... Bayonetta 2, by all accounts, is really good. Smash Bros. Just, is a game you pro- most people want to play. Mario Kart is decent. Mario Mario Kart 8 is really solid. Mar- Mario 3D World is the best, one of the best Mario console games since the Galaxy games, basically. Um, which isn't saying much because it came out right before, but it's a really <laughs> good game. Is what I like it a lot. Um, Smash Bros. seems really great. Bayonetta 2 seems really great. Like It's weird, but the Wii U has the most solid lineup going right now. Um, which makes sense because Nintendo's had more time to set up exclusives. To be fair, they're the only people making co- games for their machine, but Nintendo makes better exclusives than Microsoft and Sony, and kind of as, as far as history goes. And third parties can't crank out games fast enough. Do you think that this is a this is desperate or this is calculated? Because this is like the Xbox One is still selling more than the Xbox 360 did at this point of its life cycle. I think Microsoft's very happy with how the Xbox One is doing. I think they are 
I think I think maybe Microsoft higher up is upset with how it's doing in comparison to the PS4. Right. Nobody could have really predicted the PS4 doing as well as it did. But... I, th- I have a feeling they're looking at this holiday season as their chance, not necessarily to take back, you know, a lead or something, but definitely as their chance to sort of even things out a little bit and improve their PR base among uh, among you know consumers. I mean that makes sense considering that where they the place they've been really been lagging is PR. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't feel like they've had a lot. I don't, the the thing is, I don't know if Sunset Overdrive is going to make that leap. Um, as we've talked about before, it's hard these days to make a console decision based on single games. Just yep. because there is no such thing as... That's... Because it, it's so divided already, right? So, mm-hmm. like, you're either going to... There are the people who are already fans of Halo. Mm-hmm. And they're going to buy... They're, they're, they were already going to buy the Xbox One. So you, it's not about convincing them. Yeah, there's There's no... This stuff kind of has to come incrementally, and I don't think Sunset Overdrive is necessarily going to like bring the flood that they're they're hoping. I don't for. think it is. I think it's just one of the things that it's another nice check mark in the you know on the list. Essentially, I think the you know I the only game I see people buying consoles for this holiday season is Smash Bros. Right. Because Smash Bros. people who don't own Wii U's will buy it. I know three or four people who are doing that already, and that's just a thing that's happening. Well, moving on to another kind of ghost story is the. Xbox Entertainment Studios and what's left of it. A few months ago, we've talked about how Microsoft was shutting down their poorly planned out entertainment division, which was tasked with making TV-like programs exclusively for the Xbox console. Notice we say TV-like programs because they were supposed to be interactive and not really resembling anything like television. Which, eh, it turns out, is much harder to do. Yep. So, Daniel, what's been going on there? So, they were all slowly getting laid off. Xbox Entertainment head Nancy Tellum told Variety she was staying on until every one of her employees was let's go. She is currently trying to salvage whatever's left of the programs they put together and sell them to other studios. In August, she said she was in talks with Warner Brothers, who can presumably file the serial numbers off that Halo movie and throw <laughs> in the DC movieverse. I'm thinking that 2020 Cyborg movie is whatever's left of these Halo TV shows. I, I feel like this warrants mentioning, if only because an example, of Microsoft, a further example of Microsoft early Xbox One's plans coming home to roost. You know that those PR disasters we talked yeah. about, like they are, they have not been able to fix this yet. And worse, and now we're watching this kind of collapse: the DRM thing early on, the price thing early on, the Connect thing early on, the TV thing early on. This is all just sort of exploding in their faces now. And this fifty dollars price drop is sort of their chance to kind of beat it at the pass. Yeah, a three hundred fifty dollars console is a big deal, especially at this point. I believe it took the Xbox three hundred and sixty. Uh, 18, 16 months to drop by twenty fifty dollars Yeah, this this is happening early. I mean, to be fair, it's not a permanent price drop. No, but, but it, it's it's one for when people are buying the majority. Yeah. The majority of people are buying your console during the year. This is the biggest sales season of the. It entire might year. as well be a permanent price drop. Yeah, and you know, it's something they're going to have to come back to at some point because I don't think you can like you can't have the sale this year and then not have the price either at that level this time next year or redo the same sale exactly anyway speaking of things that are permanent and sad and depressing <laughs> um, once upon a time you could order Pizza Hut directly from your Xbox 360 but those days are long gone for the owners of a shiny new Xbox One that they purchased for only $350 how are they to get their pizza while also using their favorite Microsoft branded entertainment device Tell me, oh magical genie. Well, Microsoft has some good news from you, pizza-loving player. They've teamed up with Domino's for a brand-new next-generation pizza ordering app. Domino's, you say? The world's worst pizza? (laughs) I don't know. They're, like, fifth? 
opinions expressed by built opinions expressed by Dana Rosen may not be opinions expressed by built to play. <laughs> opinions expressed by Vigini of built to play <laughs> are almost certainly the opinions expressed by built to play. Exactly, he controls us all. We don't know much about the app, but we do know it's only coming to UK markets for now because apparently ordering pizza from your couch for, with a video game box is somehow distinctly un-American. I mean, if you're in the UK, they don't they're not as big flag fans, but mm-hmm. they are as they are big fried food fans. Yeah, but I thought British pizza was terrifying. Didn't what? they call it like Tony bread? I'm pretty sure that's a racist thing. What what fantasy world? Like, did you get this from a Professor Layton game? Like, yes. <laughs> yes. There was a puzzle. We have one large round Tony bread, and we have to slice it into exactly enough pieces for sixteen and a half people. The half person is under Professor Layton hat. <laughs> How do you cut it up in time? By the way, I, I said Professor's Layton. You would think I should say <laughs> Professor Layton's, but actually it's like Surgeon's General. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's The app will be optimized for Connect, <laughs> requiring users to shout, Domino's, feed me, before placing an order. The world is a dark, horrifying place this in which the... none of us truly can escape. This is the pizza that Xbox One owners deserve, but not the pizza they need. It's, uh, yeah. like the, I, I... You want a scary story? Imagine somebody sitting in their room, raising their Xbox One controller and yelling, Domino's, feed me. <laughs> See what you that, I think that's not enough. What you need is six people in the room saying that in a uh, choir like chant chant um as they bow towards their connect. You know, if you say Domino's feed me three times in the mirror, Hatsune Miku shows up. <laughs> speaking of terror, speaking of night terrors. <laughs> Nintendo is trying to count your money while you sleep. Uh, meaning that it's quarterly early earnings reporting season and Nintendo just as always is ready to show up their continued plummet into the dark side. Um, they would actually be showing us that if they hadn't somehow Smash Bros managed to Smash Bros eke out a Smash Bros profit Smash Bros Smash Bros Brass Bros for the first time in I think three quarters. Yeah, by plunging into the dark side, they literally went into the black. Yeah, for a change somehow. Uh, according to their earnings release, Nintendo is posting a net profit of 224 million for its July September quarter, which isn't a ton. Um, they're placing the blame squarely on strong sales of games like Smash Bros. 3DS, which was out for two weeks, two, sorry, two, weeks, two days of this quarter. Yes. So I don't know how you can really blame it on that, but whatever. Mario Kart 8 and Hyrule Warriors, which drove up Wii U sales, they admit it actually probably has something to do with the currently very weak yen. Meaning that all the money that comes from the U.S. is worth way more in mm-hmm. Japan. Um, Those two days of Smash Bros. sales were worth something like $100 million <laughs> somehow, even though I think something – I believe they sold out, but it was only like 300,000 copies in those two days. Yeah, yeah. Um, presumably, the holiday season will be treating them nicely between Smash Bros. and the Wii U. That's uh, this, uh, November 21st. November 22nd, alongside Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire 3DS, also November 22nd. Cool. So, so um, if you're a person who buys Nintendo games – You have an expensive November. $160. <laughs> Maybe if, hey, if you're that crazy person who's buying the Pokemon Ruby Sapphire double pack that gets you both versions for a non-discounted price, <laughs> because you are a lunatic who has <laughs> who has no common sense and or soul. Hey, hey, it comes with 200 free potions. Does it, seriously? Yes. That that is of no value to anyone. <laughs> no. Like, that, that is like like saying, "Hey, join Second Life. I won't touch you." Like, <laughs> don't worry. Like, yeah. Um, the. At the uh. <laughs> So, but breaking a months-long loss isn't the news here. We have something really weird that we have to notice and talk about. So, at the same event, Nintendo revealed their new quality of living program. The The QOL? Yeah, Nintendo talked about it at their last earnings report. Uh, It's a sensor that analyzes you while you sleep. 
Nintendo is teaming up with USB company ResMed, which has developed a no-contact sensor that monitors your sleep and shows you how to improve your sleeping habits. Nobody has any idea what Nintendo is doing putting money into this. Iwata, we only started... We only start something new if we think we're able to create a big market. But I'm not... But as I'm not able to discuss the pricing plans and other details today, I don't think there's much point in giving a figure for our projected scale. By using our know-how in gaming to analyze sleep and fatigue, we can create something fun. But but can you? Sleep (laughs) games? Sleep fixing? This is the most Hideo Kojima version (laughs) of the it's all a dream ending. (laughs) You will wake up from your dream of a game and and the clock next to your bed that's been sensing you the whole time will say it was all a dream. Okay, so I want to run through what this could be because Wake Up Club already exists. Yes, I forgot about that. Wake Up Club for the Vita in which you compete against your friends (laughs) to see who could wake up first. Or Uh, And they said productivity software was dead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who can wake up first? And otherwise, you punish all of your friends or something. Maybe who can have the hardest core REM sleep? Yeah. Um, who is the mo- this is about who's the most relaxed? Who is getting the best sleep? It seems to be what this thing is. How do you gamify sleep? But okay, at what point do we end up in paprika? Like, what, <laughs> at what point do we gamify sleep? And then I wake up and all it's of just, a sudden there's a giant Sonic running through the streets. I was gonna say just Mario over your face, <laughs> his mustache brushing against your own. At what you know, new to the to the health software game. They made the Wii Fit boards. They've done pedometers for years, gamified pedometers for years. They've also they tried that Wii Vitality sensor. That which... never came out. Um, that actually came out of, by the way, no, you know how Miyamoto introduces games and ideas based on what he's into at the time? Right. Apparently that was, Iwata says that was into the period when Miyamoto was really into relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> Just when Miyamoto was really chill. It's supposed to come out March 2016. It's from Nintendo's new healthcare division. So I guess Dr. Mario is now a product of that. <laughs> my best guess, my best guess, they somehow put this together with VR. And you get those awesome dream multiplayer segments of Animal Crossing where you enter into somebody else's horrifying nightmare version of their town. What if, okay, for, forget that. What if that's a terrible idea and they just invent Chucky? Like, what, if they, what if they just make give you a Mario doll that you have to fight off while you sleep? What if the um, inevitable Majora's Mask re- remake is only available in your waking nightmare? That's the only way. You can only get a game that good if you agree to have a horrifying nightmare and have Nintendo watch your every move. To conclude kind of our very brief but weird set of stories... Twitch has updated its con- its terms of service and content rules in two slightly offbeat ways. So f- first, they have a game dev section to their streaming categories, meaning devs can now tag what they're doing, uh, making video games. Um, as a per- and I'm going to be honest here, as a person who loves thinking and talking about game design, watching it is the most boring <laughs> activity in the world. Coding is not a spectator sport, no matter what so- the social network would have you believe. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a difference between the drinking game they have mm-hmm. in that with coding mm-hmm. and the actual watching of coding itself. Uh, the category isn't very exciting right now. Uh, the most channel at the time I wrote these notes is a Russian quarter whose screen says what I can only assume is AFK five <laughs> minutes in Cyrillic <laughs> characters. I'm not sure. My Russian is very rough. Okay, so directly from the terms of service, on our next part, uh, quote, Nerds are sexy, and you're all magnificent, beautiful creatures. But let's try and keep this about the games, shall we? Wearing no clothing or sexually suggestive clothing, including lingerie, swimsuits, pasties, (laughs) and undergarments, is prohibited, as well as any fully nude torsos, which applies both to the male and female broadcasters. 
You may have a great six-pack, but that's better shared on the beach on a two-on-two volleyball game, blasting playing with the boys. That may have been the (laughs) grossest possible voice, the scariest Halloween treat you could have given anybody. So this may have been the result of a shirtless streaming epidemic, but it's most likely the result of the Amazon buyout. But it might just be plain old American decency, getting at the little guy who just wants to let it all hang out. So, I mean, this this has to be... There was that example with Playroom way yes. back at some point, and that's why there's no... When you use Playroom, there's no way to actually get this Twitch anymore. Right. It's all Ustream because people were just naked or did porn <laughs> in their living room. I love that so much, <laughs> that there was just homebrew porn. The most impressive game developed on the PS4 was sex. <laughs> One could argue that the PlayStation 4 has done more for the natural evolution of the human species than any video game console has ever done in existence. I don't know. I feel. I feel like... At the point where you can say that I watched you being born is the <laughs> I watched you being conceived, maybe the creepiest God, thing. Somebody get Peter Molyneux on this. <laughs> anyway, this whole thing, it really ruins our built to play streaming haunted house this year. The theme was going to be your body is an underworld, and we just can't do that anymore. <laughs> we at built to play would like to apologize for that men- mental image. We were only kidding. Um, and now, for the sake of uh, radio, I will now take off my shirt. Um, for you, you can all hear our naked chests. Yes, uh, it is that impressive. Uh, that's it for us embarrassing selves and news. Let's get back to the competition, shall we? So, to recap, Armin and I have gone to Gamer Camp, a local indie game festival, to determine who is better at video games and an overall better human being and more attractive and stronger and everything, really. So far, Daniel's in the lead, but we've only really fought each other in Tent Warfare, so I think I can catch up with this next one. Both of us put on a set of gloves, each filled with sensors, and we fought to be better at high fives, fist bumps, and teamwork during a round of Space Bro Justice Rocket. It's a game where you fight through monsters with a friend through the power of secret handshakes. Dare discuss how Space Bro went from a simple high five to a fabric glove that helps you save the universe was Nick Kornick. Basically, we started off with the premise of, uh, you know, wanting to make a game about just being like, hey bro, high five. Uh, and from there, it evolved into, like, uh, we wanted to make a game about the secret handshakes between really, really close friends and how to people, like, from the outside, they look like total chaos. Uh, but to the people doing them, it's like, everything makes sense and, like, they're really easy to, you know, get into and they're really excited about what they're doing. Um, and then Louis, who is the artist on the game, was like, I want to draw aliens this week. I want this game to be in space. Uh, and then Space Bro was born. Uh, who were two other participants in the program. Uh, so we did a one-week prototype uh, that was using, like, uh, the original Hi-5000s, like the, the 1.0 or whatever, uh, were made with, like, rubber kitchen gloves uh, and a sock. Uh, the sock, like, basically you slid a sock onto your arm for the elbow pad and then put, like, a rubber glove on for the high five and uh, fist bump sensors. You know, we wanted something that would be a lot more comfortable to wear because rubber gloves, when you slap them together, turns out really painful who knew that you know slapping rubber against your hand over and over would hurt to be fair armand just punched me in the elbow a bunch of times so (laughs) yeah now imagine how bad that would have been (laughs) otherwise yeah um so how are how did you guys like put together the pi 5000s um so it's a lot of work honestly uh it's like hours and hours of work per glove um, it was mostly done by me and, like, my mother, actually. I'm, I'm really lucky. I've got a mom who's, like, a really great seamstress, so she helped out a ton with uh, making them. Um, but, yeah, so uh, the first step was, like, Louis had done all the art, and we decided that we wanted the gloves to look as close as possible to what the characters were wearing in the game. Just as a way of, like, really bringing people in. Like, you, if you're going to put on, like, a wonky glove, you might as well have it be that when you look at the screen, you see a character wearing the same wonky glove. Um... 
but yeah, essentially we we just you know we made these custom gloves. Uh, the sensors themselves, we had to like experiment a little bit with like different technology. Uh, so the first version of the gloves, the prototype version, used impact sensors, um, but those as they worked, um, but you had to hit them so hard that like that combined with the painful rubber gloves made it that like nobody could play our game for more than a few minutes without coming away like in significant amounts of pain. <laughs> so that's not really a good thing to have with your game. Um, so what we ended up doing eventually was kind of um, take inspiration from uh, the way Dance Dance Revolution pads work, uh, which are basically that you have two conductive materials separated by a foam that has little holes in it, so that when you press down on it, the, uh, you know, the materials make contact where there's the holes in the foam, and then the moment you release it, the foam pushes it back out and breaks the connection. Uh, part of what I like about having a game with custom controllers is that you don't have like any barrier to entry or rather everyone has the same barrier to entry mm -hmm. you know as someone who plays a lot of games I can pick up a controller from any game system and just kind of know like I just have the reflex of putting my fingers at the right places and like you know knowing where I need to hit buttons and stuff like that um, but anyone who didn't play a lot of games you hand the controller and usually they're a little bit awkward with it but something like this, like, no one's used this before, but everyone knows how to high-five. Mm -hmm. So you just put a glove on someone and tell them to high-five each other. They don't even think of the fact that they're wearing a glove. They're just going to high-five. So it's, like, a super low barrier to entry uh, for the game, and that means that anyone can play it. So we've had people of all ages from, like, you know, people who are, like, in their 60s and 70s to, like, we've had some, like, five, six-year-old kids play the game. Uh, and they can just pick it up, and they instantly know what they're doing, and that's super fun. And, I mean, when it comes to, so now you, so you kind of showed it to a non-gamer crowd and the yeah. gamer crowd, how do you find that people sort of kind of in, in that difference react? Do you think that, and also in terms of that, did you find people playing in groups or did you kind of find, you know, two strangers ended up just high-fiving each other? Uh, I think it's been pretty much a mix of both. Uh, you know, we have a lot of groups come in because I think a lot of these kind of events, people tend to go with their friends. Uh, but, yeah, we've had a lot of, uh, of strangers as well play the game. And that that's another thing that's really fun is, like, you know, you get two people who have never met before and, you know, they're a little bit, like, shy sometimes talking to each other, but then they put on the gloves and they start high-fiving and acting as if they've been the best friends for, like, years and years. Uh, and that's, like, a really fun part of the game is it just brings people together. So the, so the promise of Space Bro is that with these gloves, you can become the ultimate bro. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got no choice, right? Like, the gloves are high-powered weapons powered by platonic energy. So if you're not friends, you can't actually play the game. Mm -hmm. uh, so everyone who is actually able to play the game, it just proves that they're friends. Even if they didn't know it before, well, now they've just found out that they're, they're lifelong friends. I feel like you have the perfect slogan on your hands. Space Bros, you've got no choice. <laughs> bros or else. That, that's a little bit creepy. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's just really fun. Like, uh, I think it's a good, like, icebreaker game for just, you know, any people who've never met to just be like, hey, I don't know you. We don't even know each other's names, but we're just going to spend five minutes high-fiving uh, and we're going to have a great time with it. When it comes to multiplayer games and co-op stuff, oftentimes you have this sort of separation between people because you have control and stuff. Do you, do you think that having this sort of physicality to the multiplayer experience, in, in terms of actually touching somebody and hurting them on occasion, Armand, <laughs> um, do, you, do you think that sort of adds to the level of, you know, cooperation or even immersion to, to the way we approach the multiplayer experience? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think there's, there's definitely something just emotionally that you don't necessarily get when you're not, like, actually interacting with each other in physical space as compared to like digital space um like i'm a huge fan of local multiplayer games just because of 
you know how much it, how much more fun it is to like you know freak out and like laugh and that when there's the other people like your friends in the room playing with you. Um, but even then, there's always that separation of like we're all sitting next to each other, but we're not looking at each other, right? We're just all staring straight ahead at this screen. Uh, so like Space Bro, we actually made a real conscious decision uh, when we were making like the controllers and that uh, to have two right-handed gloves. Um, even though like technically it, it would be easier to like always be looking at the screen and have one person with a right and one person with a left so that they could just like kind of high five in the middle. Uh, but then we realized that like an essential component of you know high fiving and that is facing the person. Uh, so by having like two right handed gloves, it forces people to like really turn and like look at each other and high five. Um, and I think that's like something that's really kind of emotionally important for for a game like this. Nick is a programmer based in Montreal, currently working on Spaceboat Justice Rocket. As you mentioned, Nick's only showing the game off at events, so be sure to catch him while he's in town. You can follow him on Twitter at nkornak. Now, I think it's fair to say that you won that first game move, move. because you knew where the buttons were on the quilt. That's true. Uh, I do have basic understanding of colors, but I got you in more pain than in, in Space Bro. You, you did hit me a bunch of times. I still think I won Space Bro. I understand it's about being tight bros and a co-op experience. I still think I won, if only because I understood that we had to high five when he threw our fist at us. Okay, so just to tabulate this as points, I think that you have two points so far, and I have one point for causing you a mess amount of pain. So, one of the most violent games I've ever played is Johann Sebastian Joust. Not because you kill people, but because it reveals the dark nature of man. In JS Joust, each player holds a controller. If the controller moves suddenly, you lose. The aim is to get your friends to move so that the motion sensor picks up an awkward twitch. But in practice, you are pushing, shoving, and kicking your friends, or soon-to-be enemies, until they drop the controller and mid the feet, all the while you keep your controller steady. As long as you don't come away with any bruises, it's a super fun game, and one that's inspired other local multiplayer games. Take, for example, Henka Twist Caper. So everybody moves across. Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Okay. So the name of the game is Henka Twist Caper. What you need to do is twist, turn, and point the controller until you find the sweet spot. You'll know it's a sweet spot because the controller will light up and vibrate at the same time. If it just vibrates, it means you're close. But if it lights up, you have the right position. So when you have it there, hold it there for as long as you can because it'll fill up your meter. And when your meter is full, you will win the game. Okay? Uh, the rules for the Henka Twist are simple. Find strangers who won't be offended if you put them in a headlock. Find then the correct position on the PlayStation Move controller. Stay there as long as possible. Short of that, tackle anyone who has the right position. We chatted with Sean Pierre about how JS Joust changed the way he looked at games and how violence can be a great way to make friends. What drew you to make a game that requires so much physicality? Oh, it was probably actually Joust that did that because uh, I really liked the game. So I picked up a lot of move controllers. And then I had seven move controls, and I was wondering, what am I going to do with all of these? So I decided to try and make my own work that uh, would take advantage of the move, move controls' capabilities. How competitive are you at Joust? About Joust? Yeah. I, have, I haven't had anything thrown at me. I've seen people get kicked in shins really hard. I've seen people use swords. Not real swords, but, uh, you know, plastic or foam swords. But uh, nothing wild. You're actively encouraging people to move around... Here, as opposed to try and stay, try to get a hand to stay still. Yeah, with with Henkatus paper, um, you're taking the position of the controllers into 
you know, trying to, you're trying to focus on that as well because you have to point and twist and turn and make sure it's facing the right way. And you have a little square drawn on the floor. Is it recommended that you kind of have like a spot booked out for it? Yeah, you want to. I wanted the game to be up close and personal. I mean, you're supposed to mess around with each other, but having the box creates some sort of restraint, which forces people to actually stay really close to each other and you know get a little personal. It kind of look in practice. It kind of looks a little bit like Twister. Yeah, yeah, it, it does look like Twister because everyone's moving up and down and left and right and twisting their hands in the right positions. And usually people wind up all intertwined and it looks like a weird, this is personal on a whole new level. I mean, you're actually physically touching somebody and you're manipulating their body, which um, you don't find in too many games, uh, you know, with move controllers or traditional controllers, actually. This looks like a lot of fun, but I feel like I'm going to spend a lot of money on move controllers here. So actually, move controllers have gotten cheaper, um, much cheaper, which is really good. I, I actually had to purchase some more on, off of Amazon, and they were half the price of what they were when I first picked them up. So they're more accessible now. And you can play the game with less, with, uh, two people minimal. So you don't have to pick up seven. Just like Joust, is, I think it's more enjoyable with more people, but um, you don't need seven to play the game. What does testing this game look like? It's much more fun testing when I have multiple people. When I have to test on my own, it's kind of awkward, and I'm flailing around with seven controllers. But um, I, do a lot, I do a lot of my testing out in the field. I get friends to play, or I bring it to events. Um, and I just write down notes when I see someone do something that's not intuitive, um, and then I just go back and test that on my own and bring it to the next event, and then I'll retest that change and see what happens. So what are some of the kind of lessons that you've learned, that things that don't work in this kind of game? Um, well, people are focused on themselves and not so much on the screen. The screen plays two aspects. It does let people know who's in the lead, but I want I wanted the screen to also relay information to fans or people who are watching, the, the audience, the crowd. So uh, one thing I learned is that I needed to have better sound elements. So the game actually yells out the color that's in the lead. Um, that needs to be louder and needs to be balanced so people actually know when to move against another player. Um, other elements don't work are, let's see, there are some things that I did take out, but there's a lot of things I took out actually. I, I, could, I could read my list of things that I just cut from the game, but yeah. Part of the fun of this stuff is that you do kind of have a story to tell afterwards. Have you kind of come away just testing the game with any um, stories to tell about the game? So when you play with strangers, sometimes they're kind of polite and they won't get as physical until the second or third game. But then when you watch friends play, they take it to a whole new level. Um, I was playing in New York once and someone jumped on their friend's back and kind of rode them around trying to, trying to figure out what to do. Um, yeah, it, it's really, really nice watching friends take liberties with each other and you know do things you might, might not do with strangers. But then again, some strangers are very you know outgoing, so they'll go ahead and get in someone's face, um, which is also really, really great. I mean, I love watching people interact and just do things that they normally wouldn't do in a personal space. Jean-Pierre, also known as Origami, is a game designer based out of Philadelphia. For now, you're only going to be play it if you find him, so be sure to contact him if you want the game to be in your area. He's on Twitter at Jean-Pierre. After getting our butts handed to us by the game designer of the Henka Twist Caper, we thought we'd move on to an easier game. Which is why we started defusing bombs. If you make three mistakes, okay. you die. Okay. Okay. If, you go, if you run out of time, you get five minutes, you die. No pressure. 
Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes is a two-player bomb defusal game using the Oculus Rift. One person puts on the headset so they can see the bomb. The other takes a massive binder to study bomb defusal methods. The first player wearing the headset then tries to describe the bomb in painstaking detail, and the second frantically searches for a solution. For our playthrough, I strapped on the headset... And I studied the okay. binder. I think we should start with the keypad one, because it's really complicated. Okay. Okay, uh, Moses got here, so only one of these columns has the thing. All right, so I'm gonna, we're just going to run through. What, what, does, what, is the, what do the symbols on the key or keypad look like? A circle with a smaller circle going outside it. It's kind of like a cursive O. Okay, wait. Uh, all right, I see one of those cursive O's. Uh, okay, I only see one of those. All right, tell me what the other ones look like. Uh, it's an upside down. It's an upside down question mark. Okay. It's the kind of an inverse of a euro sign with umlauts up top. Yes. It's a backward C with a dot inside. Okay, so you're gonna want to hit euro. Backward C, then uh, cursive O, then question mark. Sorry? Did it work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a light on. Okay, perfect. I'd like to say we made a pretty good team. Some of us might have been better at teamwork than others, uh, but for the most part, the first bomb was a piece of cake. The second bomb, uh, not okay. so much. Uh, the light did not go on. Um, okay, so something with those other two wires that you didn't cut. How we much got a minute left. We got three seconds left. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we're dead. Cut them. <laughs> so to see who designed this game around communication and gamified specificity, we talked to Brian Fetter. Are the puzzles uh, for each one randomly generated, or is it just sort of certain, like essentially like sets of levels? Uh, so basically, what what the games consists of is eleven different module types, where each of those module types has its own page in the manual. Uh, the state of each of those modules that's picked is going to be random every time, and which means that you have to use different information from the manual in order to be able to solve it. So essentially, any time you, you start the game, you're going to get a different bomb and a different way of solving it than any other time you play. Where did you guys kind of get the idea to start making this kind of game? Uh, so we actually started in January at the Global Game Jam. Uh, so we actually brought our, D our Oculus Rift DK1s because we were really excited about making a virtual reality game. We'd had them for a while. We tried all the demos, and we wanted to make our own uh, content. Uh, while we were trying to think of something that we could do, uh, we had a lot of people coming up who would say, we haven't tried virtual reality before, can we try it? So we set up some demos and people were playing around with roller coasters and things like that. And there's a big crowd that would form around it. And we thought, there's a lot of people just standing there doing nothing. And it'd be great if people could all be playing, even if there's only one virtual reality headset. So we started thinking of different concepts, and the one that really won out for us was the bomb defusal because of how common it is in TV and movies and things. Yeah, there's not a lot of, at least from what I've seen, a lot of multiplayer games that utilize um, the Oculus or virtual reality in general. Is there something to kind of making this multiplayer experience where one person technically has a screen and the other person has no idea what's going on? What, is there something to the kind of the way that changes the interaction between people? Um, with respect to virtual reality or just respect to... to multiplayer. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, whenever you take different roles in multiplayer, it really does give people a completely different way of looking at it. If everyone's cooperating, taking on the same role, then you end up with people almost competing with each other in a way. You'll have people thinking, oh, well, I'm doing better at this particular aspect than this other person is. When you have the asymmetric multiplayer, it really changes it so that everyone has to cooperate. You can't do everything on your own. So having the one screen and having everyone else reliant on that person for information, having him reliant on, on the person with the manual for information, makes it actually more of a co cooperative environment than, say, something where everyone can be doing the same thing, but supposed, supposed to be to the same end. Even if you're not necessarily sharing a screen, you still have to communicate or else the game can't go through. Um, so, so you're saying kind of more people, is the game, can the game be played with more than two people? 
Uh, actually, we think that it probably plays better with more than two people. So you can only have one person in virtual reality, but you can definitely have as many experts as you want. There's obviously a diminishing returns once they can't get around the same manual. But at a party, you could definitely see three, four people on the manual. Uh, and it gets more hectic. Sometimes you may not get a better result, but you'll probably have more fun because everyone is is arguing, they're all talking, they're all involved, and that really adds to the whole thing. So just having two people is fun, but the more people you have on, on the manual side, the more voices you get, the more thoughts you get, the more fun you have. Would you, just out of, like, what's the time today, have more people uh, failed and died or have more people uh, succeeded in saving the world? Uh, so basically what we do at these kind of conferences, we have a first game bomb because people aren't going to be experienced with the game. So we have a, ga a bomb that is supposed to be fairly easy for people to understand the concepts of. It's not necessarily easy to succeed, but it isn't, it's not one that we really challenge them to the same extent the regular game would challenge them. So in that context, we probably have about 50-50 where half the people explode and half the people defuse that particular bomb. Once you get into where the full game is, once you get into what we call the normal bomb, it tends to be around 3 to 5% of people actually succeed at it and everyone else explodes. And what is the, and I, I noticed there are three sets, what's the highest level of bomb? Are there like, I, I saw there are six modules on the normal. Um, how, much, how much harder does it, does, it get, does it get? So the first game has the same three beginner, or easier type of modules uh, every time. Uh, normal can actually go from three modules to ten modules. So there'll be everything from, uh, it'll pretty much be everything from the manual aside from a special, a special class of module. Um, so a special class puzzle. So you can really modify the normal bomb to have a difficulty that scales quite well. The, the other bomb is the hardcore bomb. The only people that actually have succeeded at that are the developers. Uh, and what it does is it takes away any, usually you get three strikes and you're out. With a hardcore bomb, first mistake and you die. Uh, the other thing is that it adds in a type of module where you can't actually solve it. It just keeps re-triggering and you have 45 seconds to deal with it. So it adds a distraction from what you really want to solve, but if you don't deal with it, then you die. You said you saw it a lot in movies. Was there any particularly, particular bomb-diffusing scene that inspired you guys? There's a show called Archer where the main character is in a blimp trying to defuse a bomb and he's trying to communicate with the ground station and there's a bit of a, a flake communication channel. Second letter is dead. M as in Mike or N as, as in Nancy. God, you of all what? people. What? Archer? Me of all people, what? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Ray, hun? Okay, oh, so. Shoot. You can say okay. Oh my God. Ray, can I shoot him? In about five seconds, honey. Lana, be careful. Jesus, the helium. Right after he cuts the solid green wire. The green color is solid or? Roger. That kind of silliness was the was probably the biggest inspiration for the the nature of our game, rather than being something that's far more serious and technical, uh, which isn't what we're trying to go for. We're trying to go for a silly, fun party game that's also very challenging. Brian Fetter is a game designer from Ottawa, working on Keep Talking and Nobody Explodes. If you pick up an Oculus Rift VR headset, you might be able to play the game soon, but till then, Brian's just moving between events. Keep track of him at their blog at keeptalkinggame.tumblr.com. So, final score for uh, all that? I think I, I'm bad at math, but I'm going to say like seven. Okay, well, okay, here's how. So, twi heck of a twist party. That, we sort of tied on that one. Yeah. That was a 1 1. And then we played Needhog. Yes. A, sort of, not really a tiebreaker, but sort of a definition of how much I Because at that <laughs> point, it was what? We, we decided it was a 4 2, and then it was a 5 3. 
and Needhog was something like 17-3. <laughs> That's... I wouldn't put it that way. I would put it closer to 10. I think that was a suitable end to our bout. I won by a mile. Armand never came close. Uh, we were almost tied once. Sure, but who is the video game expert, handsome Adonis, physical powerhouse, and all-around uh, god here? Uh, you are? Thought so. In our little fights, we mentioned games we didn't have interviews for this week, but don't worry. A lot of them, we did talk to their designers, and they will show up in future episodes. As will my everlasting shame. You can find more info about everything we talked about in our show notes. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Bali, And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Jesse McGivney. Willie Cheer. Hamish Lambert. Nicholas Kornick. And... Brian Fetter. For the extended versions of interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitch Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. We're usually on the air at the Scope at Ryerson at 1 p.m. with a new episode on Saturdays. We've already started our newest theme, all about playing games with other people. We already have a primer up on the site, plus a story about brotherly love and a preview of a new Smash Bros. So make sure to follow us on Twitter at Built to Play. And me personally at Flarkon, that's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, not all Hallow's Eve. Thanks so much for listening.